I don't actually think anyone cares what kind of simple you have. Maybe a kid might be like, oh, this one was more fun or that because there's less of a tree there. But I think that we just have to remember that most people don't care about what anyone else is doing. They, they worry about themselves the most. What do people look at me? How are they looking at me? No one's looking at you that way. They're looking at themselves and worry about themselves. So if you make a beautiful, simple simcha, I don't think the reality is that anyone actually is cares. I think we've created this narrative in our head in general. I think we, we've created this narrative as everybody's making it and I'm not making it. Everyone's going to think I cheaped out. No one's going to like this. And the reality is everybody's just worried about themselves and that we accept that really people care and love each other so much. It doesn't actually matter, but we've created this in our minds. And that's, we almost have to fight our own instincts in that sense. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The high cost of living an Orthodox life is a big problem. In the United States, for example, the high cost of day school or yeshiva tuition, combined with everything from the need to purchase kosher food to buying a lulav and etrog for Sukkot, adds to a family's annual bills significantly. When we factor in the reality that standards are getting higher— Smachot, for example, are very expensive, while overnight camps often have increasingly elaborate programs that in turn make the price rise significantly, the problem is exacerbated. And then there's the issue of social or peer pressure, intentional or otherwise. More people go away for Pesach, and programs compete to offer the most luxurious amenities and best entertainment possible. Conspicuous consumption, I'm afraid, has become, among some Orthodox Jews, not a fault, but a desired feature. And whether we're conscious of that fact or not, it affects everyone by raising standards and expectations. Those people who are not able to afford the same things as others are often left feeling either less than, or even worse, end up spending more than they're able and find themselves in real financial trouble. While the problems in every locale are somewhat different, this is an issue that affects many Orthodox communities, including some of those in Israel. There are many consequences of these financial, social, and psychological realities. Two of them are the possibility of people falling for Ponzi schemes and other financial scams, including those that are broadly legal but still unethical. Another is the need for chesed and stuck organizations to find new and more effective ways to help people who, in the drive to keep up and live an orthodox life, have fallen into a deep financial hole. Two people who have broad knowledge of these problems and who deal with them daily are Rachel Critch, the executive director of Project Ezra, and Rabbi Avraham Leventhal, the executive director of Lamanachai. And together we had a frank conversation about all of these topics and more. We'll get to that discussion in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. I have started a substack called Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, and this week's article is entitled Jewish Unity, Not Jewish Uniformity. To get a free subscription, click on the link in the description of this podcast. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com.
Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rachel Critch is the executive director of Project Ezra, a nonprofit organization based in Englewood, New Jersey, that serves the Jewish community of Bergen County. Rachel is originally from Northern California and spent much of her childhood in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where she lived prior to moving to New Jersey in high school. Rachel is a Stern College for Women graduate with a BA in history and an AA in Jewish studies. After college, she attended Farley Dickinson University and received her MPA. Prior to Project Ezra, Rachel was the executive director at Shorefront Jewish Community Council in Brooklyn, New York. She lives with her husband, Daniel, and five children in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Rabbi Avraham Leventhal is the executive director of Laman Achai. Prior to his aliyah in 2005, Rabbi Leventhal was a senior instructor at the Talmudical Academy of Baltimore and a director of the Avas Yisrael Charity Fund. Since making aliyah, Rabbi Leventhal has been involved in many aspects of communal affairs, including rabbinic leadership, municipal politics, and national initiatives against poverty. As the developer and senior mentor of Smart Chesed, Rabbi Leventhal is sought out internationally for his innovative and incisive approach for poverty interventions. Rabbi Leventhal and his family reside in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Rachel Critch and Rabbi Avraham Leventhal, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, each of you is coming from a different perspective, very different perspectives. Rachel, you live in Bergen County. Rabbi Leventhal, you live around the corner from me here in Beit Shemesh, Ramat Beit Shemesh. So when we talk about the high cost of living in Orthodox life, there are certainly areas where you're going to have very different experiences and different understandings. Nonetheless, I think that even though perhaps the high cost of Orthodox life might be a bigger problem outside of Israel, here, for example, there is public religious education, I do think there has also been some sort of materialist creep into Israel as well, which I find somewhat troubling. So with that introduction, I'd like to ask each of you to outline areas where you see that the cost of an Orthodox life has caused real trouble for families. Avram, can we start with you? Sure. So there's um, there's several things. I mean, they're the basics. Obviously, a family, a secular family, uh, you know, in the world out there um, doesn't have t- two sets of dishes and two dishwashers and the expense of keeping kosher in the house, as well as the added cost of kosher food. Um, I, I think that the in Israel, it's a little bit different because almost everything is kosher. Um, so therefore, the added cost isn't felt as much as it is in the United States, but there certainly is an added cost. So that's one aspect. And then you get beyond the home and beyond um, the, the religious needs, let's say, um, is a certain amount of peer pressure. There are smachot that people make, whether it's a bar mitzvah or a bris or a wedding, and keeping up with the Goldbergs. You know, I have to have if my my neighbor had this kind of bar mitzvah or my you know my brother-in-law and sister-in-law made this kind of wedding, how could I do anything different? So that becomes a catalyst for financial stress, and financial stress becomes a catalyst for other issues within the home. So there's the aspect of being religious and the price tag of being religious. 
And then there's the social peer pressure, uh, the peer pressure that comes along again with a close-knit communities. Again, it's not like I'm living down next door to a neighbor who I only see when, if we have to walk out the door at the same time. This is someone that I might go to the same shul with, I shop in the same store with, our children go to the same schools um, or in the same youth groups. So the amount of peer pressure and social pressure is much stronger than it might be in the secular world. Okay, thank you, Avraham. Rachel, how about you? Can you give examples of what you see as the high cost of Orthodox living where you live? Yeah, so in Bergen County, we are, I guess, the number one thing that we contend with. And I think this is, of course, more of a problem in the United States than in Israel, which is what has catalyzed many people to move as well, is our high cost of Zushiva education. We, li- we live in America. We want to be able to encourage our children to be in Yeshiva. And we really don't feel that it's um, an option. It's it's a given. We have to do this. We have to make it work. And it's expensive to educate to run a school. It just is expensive. And whether or not you want to say, is a school doing this right, is a school doing that? That's not the question. The fact of the matter is you have to pay everybody who works there and everybody who works there is in the community in, in general. It supports the community as well. And that is a huge, huge financial stressor when we're talking baseline. Rabbi, what you were mentioning, two sets of dishes, dishwashers, I see those as those baseline for just the things to live your life. You don't need two dishwashers, but you know, you many people have them. those are those investment pieces. Then there are the items that are recurring. So you, of course you have your edu- day school education, but you also have buying a Lula an S road for everybody in your house and, uh, uh, you know, fill in when there's a bar mitzvah, well, all these things, again, maybe they're not every year, but these are those extra things that come up that are non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable and we don't want them to. We want you to have a mezuzah on every door of your house. That's important to our, the community, to everyone. Mezuzahs in the United, the cheapest mezuzah you can get in the United States right now is $100 a mezuzah. So if you have to get even five new for whatever reason, you move somewhere bigger or something was puzzled, whatever the problem was, that's a huge expense that doesn't come up all the time, but it does. So these are all those things you have to plan for and keep an eye on within the community. And then if you want to discuss, you know, then those are the basics. Those are the building blocks that everyone can say like, yes, we want you to have tefillin and, and uh, you know, mezuzah on your door and so on. But then you get into exactly what you were saying, how then there's the keeping up with the community. If I might add also one thing again, which does happen every year and where we see in, in Lamana Chai, um, where families the rest of the year may be making it comes Pesach, where not only do you have you have everything new, right? We can't use what you used yesterday. We can't use the same dishes and we can't use the same food products and food products might be more expensive. Um, and then that is a yearly given. You know, year in, year out, the Pesach is going to come and it places a burden on families. Not to mention the Cholomoed aspect because we have to go on a Cholomoed trip. So it's interesting. If You don't mind if I uh, say something, we've seen this exact same problem. So anyone like, oh, it's different in America than Israel. We're all Jews. We all have the same year and the same calendar. These all can be one of those things that a family that's just making it, it will push them over the edge. And I'm not talking about a family going to a Pesach program that's more expensive. I'm talking, we're, we're just talking making Pesach in your home, which is beautiful and has a lot of meaning. But at the same time, matzah this year in the United States was minimum $30 a pound for Shemira matzah. I mean, you know, would feel a lot of people covering that just alone. So one thing we've done in our organization, and I know we'll probably get more into this, is we we recognize that that can be a one time a year problem for a family. Just because you need help at Pesach doesn't mean you're going to need community support all year. So we should be here for you at Pesach. And we do that. And we help. We also do 
a program during Cholmoid where we will provide tickets to certain activities. And in New Jersey, everyone goes to Great Adventure. NCSY buys out the park for Pesach and we all go, everyone goes and they're very helpful and we work on it. We get a lot of tickets from them. We give them to families who wouldn't be able to otherwise and they get that day. And because it is something that is, we feel as a community is important to have kosher the Pesach food and also be able to spend time together. There's just a way to support people and to do that in a way that makes sense and is not, you know, materialism on top of materialism and trying to one up everyone. Scott, if I may, that's also another advantage of uh, Aliyah. That's five days less of Yamta per year that you have to worry about. That's a good point. Okay. And I certainly want to promote Aliyah. So thank you for adding that. You've both said a lot of very important points. I want to get back to something which Avraham mentioned in terms of peer pressure and also the way Rachel related it on some level to Pesach programs. When you said, Rachel, I'm not talking about going away to a Pesach program. I'm talking about just basic necessities at home. But on the other hand, let's talk about Pesach programs for a second. Now, I've gone on Pesach programs. I'm not criticizing anyone who goes on Pesach programs. I do know that when I was a kid, Going to a Pesach program, or back then it was a Catskills Hotel, was something which, frankly, my family did. We went to Grossinger's on Pesach, but I didn't know that many other people who went away for Pesach. A few families, but not many. Now it seems, again, from my perspective in Israel, I've been here for 27 years, I might have a skewed perspective. Far more people are going away to programs and much more expensive programs, programs that are, they'll break the bank for it. That's an example of peer pressure. So can we talk a little bit more about that peer pressure aspect and how it's manifest? Because it sounds easy. Well, don't give in to peer pressure. But as you said, Rachel, it's not so simple. If everybody's going to Great Adventure, then if my kid can't go to Great Adventure, he's not going to understand and maybe he's right. What are examples, perhaps, Rachel, if you can give me some ideas of where peer pressure has really come in to help make the price tag of Orthodox living go even higher? So I see from, from where I stand, um, a little less with like the Pesach program, but even though it is something because obviously we're not going to pay for someone to go out a program when you can, unless there's extenuating circumstances or a family member needs you to go, whatever the case is. But let's say when it comes to summer camp, now summer camp is amazing and it's important, but there are summer, some camps that are sleepaway camps that are very expensive and some that are less expensive, but in all, that is a an expensive choice to make for a family. Day camp, we don't we don't believe that that is a choice. You have to go to work. Your kid has to go somewhere. You want them in a safe Jewish environment. You go to day camp. We have beautiful options in the community, and that's wonderful. As children get older, they're either, they might want to go away because everyone goes away. It can be really hard to be the only kid on the block, the only 13 or 14-year-old who didn't go, but you're the one who's working in the camp, in the day camp locally. Uh, it's Now, again, I don't want anything I say is not to say that there isn't 100% the other point. Slipway camp can be incredibly important for, for a child to go through, even one going through financial struggles. There might be stuff going on in the home. There might be some mental health components. So I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking, you know, mainstream standard situation where sending your kids to day camp for $2,000 for the summer is probably a lot more attainable than pushing the five to six to 10 at some of our sleepaway camps. And I'm talking about the United States one, not even sending your kid out of the country into Israel, which also is a huge pressure. And, and it, you know, what is it to be the only kid in town? And I understand, I hear it. I'm maybe not as sympathetic as some people who we work with would like me to be towards it when there aren't extenuating circumstances. If you say to me, because everyone else is, I'm like, that is not a great reason to tell me something. I'm not a believer in because everyone else is or because that's how we do things. 
there is some and there's validity to it. So I, I think that's one area that I see. And obviously Simcha's you you get that, you know, are you gonna be the only kid in the class that didn't go on a boat for their bar mitzvah? And it's like uh, that's great. You know, that could be very hard and it can be very stressful for the parents leading up to that, also knowing that they're and then as they go to each bar mitzvah and pick up the kids from each bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. So it can be these again, not to say that if you are in the position to have these beautiful simplas and that that is the way that you are doing showing your you know how your your simcha and your joy that you shouldn't do that but we should just be clear that like it's also okay to do a backyard bar mitzvah also for those and not there's nothing wrong with that and i think that's really where we need to find that sweet spot okay avraham how about you what have you seen in terms of peer pressure here in israel so here again here it's, it's not quite the same as far as summer camps number one because the um even though officially the school year ends around the same time as it does in the u.s almost every school whether it's public religious education or the semi private schools um have this extra month of what they call uh they'll either call it like uh, extended school or ketana like a summer program um which is either free or part of the tuition or highly subsidized um which leaves about two weeks left for summer camp um and that's what happens most of the overnight summer camps in israel are about a two-week program or so um and because of that they're far more affordable and in general because it's not all of the spits that you might have in the united states um it's a cheaper version that being said um it's it's more within the culture in israel summer camp wise to take to you live to go on family trips to go a couple of days for a, you know the timmer up north um, and therefore, summer camp is not as much of an issue. The other things, however, are becoming more of an issue. Uh, I think, Scott, you mentioned it earlier, the idea that some of the materialism is creeping in. You know, Baruch Hashem, we have more and more olim um, in, in recent years, and the olim bring wonderful things from the West. Um, one of the not as wonderful things is a certain amount of materialism. They're accustomed to types of products, American products, they're, type, they're accustomed to having more than one car or even one car, which not everyone in Israel does. And that develops a peer pressure as well. One second, you know, next door, the the um, the Bernsteins have not only one car, they have two cars, we don't even have one. Or they have a minivan that their entire family can go in and we have to rent one for our yearly trip. So that's a type of materialism as well, um, where we might we live next door to these people, we go to the same school, uh, we go to the same shul, but outside of that, it's very different. Um, some people have guests all the time, some people don't. So there is a little bit of materialism that's seeping into the Israeli society, um, you know, as there, there's more, you know, the World Wide Web. The idea of internet that you can see more and more comes into your home um, and more advertising and, and, and brand names and things like that. So obviously, uh, things that children didn't know about or even adults, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, they're starting to realize and they're starting to develop a want or desire or at least a curiosity about so that becomes part of the um, of the culture. And one second, this is what we're going to aspire to. We're going to aspire to two cars. We're going to aspire to, um, you know, wearing uh, Jordan, uh, Nike Jordans, as opposed to the uh, Adidas or the cheaper one that's available here. And that becomes part of the issue as well. Um, as far as smachot, here, if a person makes a, a low-level simcha, I don't think anyone turns their nose up at it. They understand, you know what, you're just as married if you get, if you're in a budget 
budget hall in Yushalayim as or if you are in the uh, Taj Mahal. There's, you're no less married. Um, and statistically, someone told me that if you look 20 years down the line, more of the people who got married in the budget halls are doing better than the ones who got married in the uh, in the grand ballroom. Um, so those are the things that we see um, as far as the peer pressure, that because, again, um, that, you know, that you're in the same social setting, but you may not be in the same economic setting, that causes the social pressure. And I just want to just a quick follow up just to add, I I think also something that we have to, in part, at least in, in Bergen County more, is that I don't actually think anyone cares what kind of simple you have. Maybe a kid might be like, oh, this one was more fun or that because there's less of a maturity there. But I think that we just have to remember that most people don't care about what anyone else is doing. They, they worry about themselves the most. What do people look at me? How are they looking at me? No one's looking at you that way. They're looking at themselves and worry about themselves. So if you make a beautiful, simple simcha, I don't think the reality is that anyone actually is cares. I think we've created this narrative in our head in general. I think we, we've created this narrative as everybody's making it and I'm not making it. Everyone's going to think I cheaped out. No one's going to like this. And the reality is everybody's just worried about themselves and that we accept that really people care and love each other so much, even when you're, that it doesn't actually matter, but we've created this in our minds. And that's, we almost have to fight our own instincts in that sense. Yeah, just a very interesting anecdote. Uh, Before I made Aliyah many years ago, the community that I came from, um, there, this this began this, the the peer pressure of making fancy weddings and weddings that were beyond people's uh, means. So there was a family there, very wealthy, charitable family, not cheap by any stretch of the imagination. These are people who helped and gave out a lot of money. Um, they decided when their daughter got engaged that they were going to buck the system and they were going to make a very simple, nice wedding that didn't cost a lot of money, figuring that if we do that and we're high society, this will be an advantage for everyone else um, and and, and, a, and a role model for everyone else. And they did. They made a, a, a almost self-catered, very nice wedding, a lot of people there. Um, and, and, they, and they sort of wanted to advertise the why they were doing that. Um, and I was working in an organ, not working, I was volunteering in an organization there in Baltimore. And the feedback was, oh, of course they can do it. No one cares what they do. No one's going to say anything because they who are, they are. But if we do such a wedding, then people are going to scoff at it. So there went their uh, their um, their beautiful idea and intention to really lower the bar. Um, and they said, you know, everyone else had the reason why not. But I thought it was a great experiment and call a kavod to them for trying. Certainly call a kavod to them. And I've been saying for a long time, we need a Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel tried to buck the trend of extraordinarily expensive funerals by being buried in a plain wood box. And that was established as the Jewish people's tradition, both because he was very wealthy and, of course, because he was the Nasi of the Sanhedrin. So people, for both reasons, would look to him for an example. We need more examples like that. Perhaps if more people, and not just one family, did that, and that became de rigueur and the standard, that would be a lot better. And I actually want to take what you said, Avraham, and ask Rachel what she thinks about that. Because Rachel, you said, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, that it's not really that anybody's looking at you. You're looking at yourself and assuming that everybody is going to say how terrible your simcha was or how not impressive it was or how unsuccessful you must be. But you also said a few minutes ago that if you want to have a really big simcha, it's okay to do that. I don't know if you meant that literally. And certainly, I can't criticize anybody. What, what do I know? But I do wonder if we need those Rabban Gamliels to do like Avram said, to say, no, it's not okay because you are in a subtle way 
upping the ante, making it more difficult for the person, even if it's their own problem, their own psychology that's telling them, I have to have a great simcha, an expensive simcha, or people will look askance at what I'm doing, even if it's just in their own minds, it's still there. And I believe that that is another major problem. And people really go into debt making smachot, and it's a terrible thing. Yeah. And so I don't feel that I am in a place, I am no Rabbi Gamaliel. <laughs> I am not in a place to say, you all should do it this way. You should all do it that way. I think that people have you know, decide how they're going to live their life and they're going to spend their money. And there are certain parts of materialism that can be really uplifting within our community, if really done with the way, with intention and mindfulness and really keeping the community, Hashem, at the center of everything we're doing. Am I going to do this big wedding? And then I'm also going to pay for four weddings for people who can't afford them. And sometimes they don't even know that they've done that. You know, I, I think that at least in our community, when you, and I think this is true with any human being, Jewish, not Jewish, whatever, if you put too many restrictions around certain things in, in this time, in this era, not, you know, not a thousand years ago, you're going to start having maybe a negative response. The way you have a kid, if you have a kid who's never allowed to have candy or sugar, the minute they find somewhere that they can find a cookie jar, they're going to eat the whole cookie jar. Whereas you have the kid who has unfettered access to all the candy and sugar in the world, and they don't care about it. So I think that there's a, it's much, it's beyond me. I don't, I don't begrudge anyone from doing what they can. So if I know a lot of times you'll see people and I know who's like the big, big Baltadaka in the community. And I'm just like, hey, do what you're going to do because I know what's, I, I happen to have that insight and it, notice, but I, I think that about everyone. If I see something bigger and more family, I go, I bet they're just going to give a lot more also. That's what it is. And if there's something we do need to work on and say, maybe we need to tone it down as a community. Maybe that's something particular schools could do. Maybe people, schools can say, you know, this is what we anticipate. I think that's where it might be the way to have the communication. I think if you have this big grand, this is how we do things now, you're going to make it worse for yourself. I hear that. Spot on because the, the uh, many years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago, um, various rabbanim in America started this takanon for weddings. You could have only X amount of band members and and you know and uh, how many courses at the meal and and uh, and and whatever. And it didn't go. It just didn't go because one second I'm a businessman. How could I do this to my colleagues? You know how could I not invite more than uh, less than two hundred people? And therefore the takanon with the greatest and best of intentions was not successful. And I think you're right. I think that's the reason why. I think that we have to work on leadership bottom up. In other words, I think a taka known fiat from rabbinical authorities saying this is how we have to do it is simply not going to work. But if, using again the example of that family you mentioned, Avraham, if families together in plural started doing this, this became the thing that they are starting to do, it might be a lot better. Rachel, what you said made a lot of sense. And I'm not, I, I actually yeah. agree with you. I would only say on some level, though, there's a part of me that feels, well, I'm going to have a big simcha, but since I'm rich, I'll also give a lot to tzedakah. It sort of sounds like buying indulgences in my own and mind. I hear that. I do right? hear that. I do hear that. And I, I, I just, you know, I hear it. I, I think there's a, there's a, you know, I don't want to tell anyone what to do with their money. I mean, unless they want to give it to me, but I'm not <laughs> as an organization. I'm sure we're, we're the same that way. Exactly. But no, but I really, I, I think it has to be more of a culture shift within the community versus, versus a from, and that, and the way we are now, you know, my husband and I were having a conversation the other day and he was asking me the difference. He's very disconnected from anything financial. He's a 
medical professional and he just focuses on what he focuses on. And he asked me the difference between two different communities. He said, I don't quite understand what, how much more expensive is it to really live in that community than this community, community A versus B. I said, well, okay, community A, housing prices are higher. He said, but I said, but other than housing prices, everything's the same. Community A and B shop in the same stores. They go to the same schools. They have the same this. Uh, the difference between that, again, besides the housing, is the culture of the community and what their standards are. Community B just doesn't, is just a very different place than community A with what they expect. And it's a self-selecting group of people who choose to live in community B versus community A. So that's where your problem is, where that's where the issue is. It's not that it's actually more expensive in one place over the other. Now, this is not the conversation with Israel versus the United States. Those are very different financial. We're talking lo relatively local communities in the United States. And what was the difference between the two? And I think it came down to what are the expectations? That's social pressure. No, it's, it's, it's the, the actual bottom line is almost the same. What changes is the social aspect and the influence the social aspect has on the members of that particular community. It becomes a social contract, if you would. I think we have to also acknowledge, at least this is what I think, some social pressure is positive, even if it causes people to spend more money. A very simple example, Rachel, you mentioned earlier, how everyone should have a Lula and Esrog on Sukkis. So my grandparents, one person in Lowell, Massachusetts had a Lulav and Etrog, and everyone would use that one Lulav. When I was a kid in Newton, Massachusetts, most people had, but not everybody. And now it's a, a yeah, of course you have to have a Lulav and Etrog. Now, admittedly, the price have gone down, but at the same time, I can't speak for anybody's particular financial situation. It's probably a good thing that we all feel we should get a Lulavanetro for Sukkot. Much more important in terms of its long-term effect is the now established understanding that your kids should get, at least according to many, a Jewish education. And once upon a time, there might have been less peer pressure for that. It's fine. If your kid goes to public school, that's okay. Certainly, my parents went to public school. That's what you did back then. Nowadays, that wouldn't happen. And that's a good thing, even though we are going to speak a little bit more about the high cost of schooling. That's a problem in its own right. But at least the concept that we have to all have a Jewish education is obviously a good one. But you should know, Scott, um, from what I understand in certain communities in the United States, uh, I don't think it's across the board, but there are several communities that it's come full circle, that because the cost of tuition is so high, there are people sending their children to public school, and there are more and more people going. My sister teaches in a public school in a very large from community, and she said there are literally in her school scores of from kids because of the cost of tuition. I hear that. Okay, I want to move on to something else. And this is sort of a philosophical or economic discussion about the free market. And again, this is my own vision of it. It doesn't mean that I'm right. But it seems to me that too many people in Orthodox communities, certainly not everybody, but too many people act as if free market capitalism, along with conspicuous consumption, is an absolute good mandated by the Torah, so to speak, that this is a Torah good to try and spend as much as you can and to earn as much as you can. I'm certainly not somebody to criticize the greatness of the free market. Rabbi Sachs at Sal talked about how the free market is the best way that we have found yet for the distribution of goods to more people. Of course, that's true. But I do question whether it's the ultimate good that many people seem to believe. And I'd like to quote something which Daniel Krauss sent me, someone we all know. He sent me something about this particular point. I'm going to read it now. I'd like to hear what you think about this. He said, Capitalism has, without a doubt, improved the quality of life for just about everyone in the world over the last century in a way that really has never been done before in the past. There is no doubt that we should all want to live in a capitalist country. When people talk about capitalism, invariably they talk about private property and the notion that what I earned is mine. 
And this is all true, but misses the point of what really makes capitalism work. What makes capitalism work has more to do with the contrast between a centrally planned economy and a bottom-up driven economy. Communist or socialist economies can work just for short periods of time because the first time the government makes the wrong economic decision, it all falls apart, since they are the primary, if not only, economic decision maker. The beauty of capitalism is that we have 300 million people in this country making different decisions based on their expectations of the future. Invariably, some are right and some are wrong. The beauty is that the ones who are right benefit disproportionately, but they also pull society forward through innovations such that the price of having been wrong is quite small in the big picture because the economy continues to advance. So what's the point? The point is capitalism has nothing to do with our communities. It is a great way to run an economy, but isn't particularly relevant to how to run a community. How we run our communities should be guided by the Torah principles rather than philosophical ideas about the virtues of capitalism. And now let me continue because this gets back to the schooling question. Daniel continues, our education system is a great example of this. We treat education as a private good. It's a fee-for-service model. We give discounts when necessary, which is beautiful, but the model inherently is built with education being a private good, the responsibility of the household. The crazy part about this is that it is pretty much accepted everywhere that ed education is a public good. It's free at the elementary and high school levels for everyone because no one should have to make sacrifices for their kids to be educated when the community has more than enough money to pay for it collectively. This is what the public school system is all about. It enables people to get education who couldn't otherwise afford it by having people who aren't using the system pay into it. It's somewhat mind-boggling that we prize education possibly more than any other culture but actually have an inferior moral position on education than most others, precisely because we treat it as a private good. To the point of the podcast, there are many aspects of Orthodox life that are just inherently more expensive. There are other aspects that are somewhat self-inflicted based on our operating model that is largely unnecessary. So that I thought was a very important point. I'd asked him to send it to me because when he and I spoke last week, I said, wow, I would like you to write that down for me. And he was very gracious enough to send it to me yesterday. I'd like to get your take on that because he's basically saying just for our purposes that while we're not disparaging capitalism, we are disparaging it as a way to run communities as opposed to a country. And we should have, I can extrapolate from me saying, we should have a type of Jewish public school, a fund into which everybody in the community gives, at least those who are able to, and everyone partakes of it because we understand that Education for Jews is good for everybody, even if it's not my kid. It's good if my neighbor also has his child get a Jewish education. So, Avraham, what do you think of that idea? So, uh, so um, what he's saying, from what I understand that he's saying, is capitalism is excellent as far as an uh, is an economy, meaning that it creates opportunities that you were not going to have in a communist or a socialist system. Um, and those opportunities mean that a person on in their on their level can advance. Um, or perhaps, you know, choose a profession based on the need of the economy or the need of the growing economy and emerging economy, where we've seen in emerging economies that there's a certain amount of, um, of opportunity that may not exist otherwise. Um, what he's saying as far as the community is interesting because the downside of that capitalism is as people get more wealth and people are able to buy more, then you have a competition. 
again, let's get in the secular world, we'll say keeping up with the Joneses, because now they have this type of car, or two types of car, and this house and a summer house. So now I want that opportunity as well, which again, could be a positive driving force. I'm going to go out and work. I'm going to open a business. I'm going to go into a profession that uh, there's a need for. What happens then is every part of the community becomes a good. In other words, there are uh, Ivy League schools, or there are, you know, top le level private schools. Again, we're talking in the secular world. And you can only get into that school if you, um, you know, if you can pay the bill or you have the right pedigree, whatever it might be. So what happens is, as you said, education, then instead of becoming the public responsibility, um, it becomes a private choice and it becomes a product just like the car, just like whether we're going to drive a Lexus or a BMW or a Chevy, right? Or are we going to live in a two, in a duplex? Or are we going to live in a mansion? Are we going to go to the community pool? Or are we going to build an in-ground pool? So our schools become the same way. It becomes a type of materialism that our schools and therefore the cost of that schooling, the cost of that um, private enterprise skyrockets. And I think that's what he's speaking to, as opposed to, I'll give you an example. Here in, in Beit Shemesh, my children went to a school where there are a boys-girl division and a girls' division. Uh, nursery through 12th grade, and everyone has their own campus. There's a school for the girls' elementary, there's a school for the girls' high school. There's a school for the boys' elementary, there's a school for the boys' high school, right? However, there's one central administration for the financial aspect and the administration and overseeing all the different campuses. Of course, there has to be a different principal, there have to be different teachers within the school, but having a centralized administration that looks over a student body of probably now close to 1,500, 1,800 students is a tremendous savings. Where in the United States and one community, you could have 10 different schools with 10 different heads of school and 10 different administrators and 10 different fundraisers and everything else, um, which again, adds to the cost of that education. So there's a way to have a semi-communal um, school where they're, we're pooling the resources for the administration aspect and still giving the individuality to boys and girls depending on their grade level. Rachel, how about you? What do you think about that idea, the possibility, for example, of some sort of public school model for yeshiva education? So I think one thing we just have to kind of keep in mind is it sounds like a, I'm not for or against this model. I just, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. In the public school system, your school, every school is not equal. If you go to school in, I'll give a personal example. We live in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Fairlawn, New Jersey has one of the best public school systems in the country, in the state. New Jersey is one of the best in the country and Fairlawn's at the top of that list. But if you draw, if you happen to not live in Fairlawn, New Jersey, which has higher taxes, higher cost of living, and you live three miles away in Patterson, New Jersey, your education is, your public school education is significantly worse. It's not because you don't have dedicated teachers who care. You're in a school system that doesn't have as much money. So while we as a community and different pockets of the community may have like more than enough to take care of it, and I don't know that that is 100% true nationally in the United States. So if you were to do it just as the Kihila model, there may be communities that are going to still fall short. Uh, if you did it on a national level, I don't know how you'd organize that many Jews to agree to that one thing, but, you know, go ahead. So I, I think we do have to see that even things that we, that shouldn't be private goods, exactly like what he said, having a well-educated populace is the way to have prosperity, to have peace for everything. 
But even within the community at large, that's not what happens. You get what you pay for everywhere in the United States. And you do not have a education system right now in this country that is that is a baseline. There is no baseline public education. And if you're wealthy and go to a private school, public school, and you're in a wealthy community, you're going to get a significantly better education. But it's all public school. Shouldn't it all be the same? So I think we need to 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 look at that and realize, all right, that there, this is a much broader question. How do we deal with this? Because we're living in an entire culture that community and culture in the United States that it as much as we say it's a public good, it is a private good. And is that I'm not saying it's right, it's wrong. Like we have to really step back and see, like, would that really work? Or would it just be that the kids in New York City and in Teaneck, New Jersey would have really, really great schools and the kids in Ohio would be where they still are? You know, and I say Ohio, but they have other issues. I just threw out a random, not coastal Google name. So I think that it's a it's a very hard question and you have to take the lessons learned in different forms of education to really to see if it works because we also don't have the same cohesiveness in some communities you know the catholic church is really good at keeping everyone in line and paying those fees and making sure it's going away and for better or for worse we are a much more diverse community the orthodox Jewish population and we have to take that into account in everything that we do what you're talking about largely, it seems to me, is the law of unintended consequences. You don't yes. know what actually is going to happen. It could be that you might end up losing all the benefit through what you actually lose. I hear that. That's an important point as well. But I, not to say nothing should be tried. I don't, I'm not the type to say, well, it might be a problem, so let's not do it. Just go in with your eyes open. What could? What are the potential unintended consequences? You know, and you never know them because they're unintended. <laughs> but with your eyes going in with your eyes open and be mindful of what's going on that's always my my viewpoint i want to continue and actually soon we're going to get to the question of how communities should support those people who are having a hard time i do want to get there but there's one more topic that i want to reach first when it comes to the high cost of orthodox living and the pressure that it puts on people i'm going to use an example i saw yesterday just online i'm not going to mention any names but i think it is emblematic of a real problem which is that there was a major influencer, he has hundreds of thousands of followers, who put up an ad, obviously a paid ad, later on he said it was a paid ad, for an investment firm saying, this investment firm is so incredible, their returns are, I think, at that 16%, whatever it is, and he said they have a secret sauce, it's unbelievable what they're doing. Okay, free market, advertising, capitalism, investments. The problem is that, at least in my very unsophisticated financial mind, there is no such thing as a secret sauce. There is no such thing as an investment firm which can guarantee such high rates without also guaranteeing a very high risk of losing everything. The problem I see it is that because there is such a high cost of living and because there is such social and peer pressure to make sure that I can also go on vacation, to make sure I can also buy a second or third car, even just to pay for yeshiva education for my two, three, four, ten kids, I need a lot of money in order to do that both in Israel and in the United States, but especially in the United States because of the education aspect. And therefore, people are getting taken in, and we've heard more and more cases about that. There was a cover story in Mishpach about a month ago about this. And in fact, I even spoke to a lawyer recently who said to me, in this exact words, he goes, I see Ponzi schemes every single day. And he works with the Frum community. And I get very nervous when there are these Ponzi schemes and people are going to get sucked in, the vulnerable, people who need money for good reasons, and they're getting sucked into them. And even if it's not a Ponzi scheme, even if everything is technically legal, we can talk about people who overpromise, who 
overstate their qualifications and their knowledge. They pretend they have a secret sauce. They understand the market better than other people when in fact, I don't think that's necessarily true. People get sucked in and we hear it over and over. So many stories of people losing everything. I'm not even sure what the question is here, but I suppose I throw that out to both of you to ask you if you see this as a problem the way I see it as a problem, as it's increasing the number of people who are investing and getting licked by it and getting destroyed by it. I don't know if that's increasing, but it's a terrible thing. And I think it's something which has to be addressed in this context. Rachel, what do you think? Do you see that? I think there's some there's a point of education there. And again, I'm going to take a step back and look at the broader community as well. Whenever you have a difficult, whenever you're going through a recession, whenever things are hard, that's when you see a direct correlation to that's when these schemes pop up. That's when the schemes, the senior citizens pop up and so on, because people are desperate. It's part of, they get, you know, they're really trying. And I would say it's to, to be able to keep up with the education costs and whatever other cost of living that we see, someone who's in a really difficult situation who may not want to reach out to someone else for help because they there's pride and I, I respect that and they they, they want to make it work on their own but there's also a lack of education I think anybody who has any sort of financial education will see someone who says 16% secret sauce and go okay sure you do because like you said the only time you get rewards that high is when your risk is very high and that's very basic but I think that I think the problem in that regard and where we can help our community is really bring in financial education and awareness at a much earlier stage. Actually, we don't really do it at all as, as a co collective community. So it really has to become something that we focus on heavily in the later years of high school. I'd recommend later years of high school because that's really, you know, when you're about to use these things, but to kind of sprinkle it in throughout children's lives and throughout their education. Why is it so hard to instill this and to have this happen? Because the teachers were never given the skill. This is just something that we pretend everyone just knows. So many clients that I see every day go, when was I supposed to learn about this? I, I just didn't know. And if your parents aren't savvy or aware or didn't think to teach you, then you can be sucked into it. So while this is a general, you know, world problem when there's strife, we we can't we can't fix everybody. Let's try to fix us. And I think that if we really need to, that's an indicative of showing us, we need to really educate people and say, yeah, you could get 16% returns. You're you also could lose a lot. And if you let people have, give people that education, you're going to save them so much more down the road. So I know that's a very long game answer to the question, but I think people are just the lack of education and lack of options and they're nervous and they're scared. And that's when people prey on others. And alongside that, I'll just add the fact that in our communities, the people who are rich are very often the leaders of the community. They often set policy. They're the philanthropists. And because they're the philanthropists, therefore, they can decide which philanthropies have the money to go forward, which schools are better off. And because of that, it's very, very difficult to say, I don't want to be that. Of course I want to be that. Why would I not want to be able to set policy and make sure that the things I care about are the things that the community cares about? I'm talking about in a theoretical level. And certainly, you know, having a third car would be great, too. I think that that pressure, if someone says, look, you're barely making it, that guy's making it, I can get you 16%. Even if they have financial education, they might have that cognitive dissonance to say, well, you know what? This guy seems really legit. And that's part of the problem because we're talking about from Jews, relatives, people you would trust, and they're the ones who are unfortunately causing people to lose everything. Avraham, what do you think? I just want to, I want to a little bit different angle. I, I disagree a little bit um, with what you're saying is that it's people who are in crisis or strife. 
Um, I think part of the issue is instant gratification. We live in a time of we, we want and need instant gratification, right? I can go online and and order or on my phone and order dinner and it's here in a half hour. Um, or, you know, I can, I'm on the, on the plane and I'm ordering something from Amazon. And by the time I get home, it's, it's waiting at my front door. So instant gratification is also get rich quick. Um, that's a form of instant gratification, whether you're someone who is in a difficult situation, um, you know, who's really struggling or um, someone who just wants to get rich quick. Um, I'll give you an example. Many years ago in Baltimore, there was a story, again, talk about 16%. There was a bank offering 16% interest on a savings account. And many young couples, not only from Baltimore, from all over the from world, um, put their money into this bank account and into their bank account there with the hope that, you know, the $10,000, $20,000 they were getting in wedding money will now get a 16% return. It's worth for a couple of years. Um, unfortunately, the president of the bank died um, in the middle of his 35-year prison term because, again, there was no such thing in a bank um, as 16%. And even though it was a bank, it wasn't FDIC. It was some new, um, you know, some new insurance, which they found out later he was part of. Um, so that was part of the whole scheme. So what happens is it's not only, again, that someone's in, in crisis and they're, and they're trying to get out of it by doing this. Yeah, they'll play the lotto, you know, buy $100 worth of lottery tickets with that hope. Um, I think it's it's the idea of, you know, I can do it. They, instead of looking at the Warren Buffetts of the world and other people, they go ahead and look at the people around them and say, hey, you know, they're again, they're driving a fancy car, they're living in a fancy house, or they're having fancy clothes. I can do the same thing. Second part is you mentioned in the beginning, you said it was an influencer. I think that influencer is one of the most dangerous things today in today's society. Um, not to say that there aren't great influencers who give wonderful messages and they're inspirational and motivational, but why do I have to buy this particular cereal or go to this particular restaurant or, or wear that type of shoe? Because this guy who has a half a million followers does that, even in our own community, even within the Orthodox communities, there are quote unquote influencers, whether from the rabbinic standpoint or from the social standpoint. And um, as good as they can be, there's a certain amount of havoc that is created. Lastly, and here I am 100% on board, is the idea of financial literacy. The education is so important. Um, financial literacy gives the people, again, as you said very well, Rachel, that it says, you know what, it's impossible to, in this type of investment, or very unlikely to make that kind of return, certainly for the long term. So I got to think through, but financial literacy is so important um, from an early age. Uh, I met someone who thought as long as there were checks in their checkbook, they still had money. In other words, the physical check was a representation. Unfortunately, in Israel, up until a certain amount of time ago, that was true because you had a minus, you had an overdraft, that the sky was the limit. Uh, and we know the financial issues that that caused. Today, there's a little bit more control on that. So financial literacy is important. Some of the smartest people who have PhDs and otherwise don't have even an hour of financial literacy under their belt. Um, and that's something that's so important, so essential to the financial health of the Frum community, the Orthodox community. I think what you're saying is so important. I definitely agree with all of those points. And you're absolutely right. It's not just the vulnerable. It's also the upwardly mobile who think that, hey, you know, I can do the same thing. And it's not their fault. It's just they're not informed. They don't have that information. They don't have that financial literacy. And that reminds me, actually, of something that, Rachel, you told me when we spoke earlier in the week about that which your organization does. Because both Avram and Rachel, you run innovative chesed stucco organizations that do things differently than many others. I'd like to move into that a little bit now. And, Rachel, I'll start with you because you talked to me about how it's so important to teach people just how to budget and how to actually 
understand that if you have $100, you can spend $100, but not more, which people don't necessarily understand. And also, it is okay in certain circumstances to go and have some recreation. You don't always have to say no. That's just part of setting up a budget. So let's start with you, Rachel. Can you talk about how you understand how our chesed organizations should do things? What do you think should be the model or at least a positive model that we follow? I can talk about how we have found it to be the best. And, you know, I'd, I would love anyone who takes these ideas and wants to use them and finds it useful within their community, more power to you. I think there's so many ways to do to help people. But at Project Ezra and in, our, in Bergen County, we really believe that the best way to help people is to get them on the track of then helping themselves as well and providing them with the skills. It's just the old adage, teach a man to fish, you know, give him a fish, teach a man to fish. We give a lot of fish, though. We still definitely make sure to give out a lot of fish. You know, we financially prepare, give people money. They're in various situations. We help people find jobs. We do all sorts of things that really help pull them up from themselves and take care of themselves. But we really always, whenever we start working with someone, our goal is how are we going to exit them? program you don't because you don't start with us without before we even start thinking about how we're going to get rid of you not in a bad way but in a positive way and what are the steps that we need to take with this family is there a crisis that has to just be dealt with right now after that crisis can we do job training can we start doing a resume review can we help whatever the process is and there's every family this process is going to be different because everyone has different situation that they're dealing with different external issues there's health concerns there's mental health concerns there's so many things to take into account. Uh, so but the one thing that we really keep constant between all of our clients and everyone who we work with who get financial assistance from us is we 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 teach them and we make them and it might sound harsh, but I don't I don't think it is. I think it's really just a way of making sure that we have education is that we have a budget and a tracking system. And it's it's a very simple cell spreadsheet with a few formulas that a couple of very smart people put together from one page to the next. And we do that exactly. We should say, this is on the top where you put in how much money you have. This number down here, it says amount to be budgeted. That number, you budget everything. It can't be different than the number on the bottom. And you have to make choices. I was working with a client recently and due to some various changes and stuff that they're their budget was going to be tighter this month. So I went through with them and I said, listen, we're not going to take away from food because you have to eat and your food budget was, I felt was appropriate based on where we live. But you know what? We're going to take away, we're not buying clothes this month. We're taking anything out of the clothing budget because that's just not, you have clothing. You know, there were certain things we moved around, we took care of and it's not easy, but it, they're aware of it. In addition to that, we have them track all of their expenses. Because once you write everything down, you really see it. So what the whole hustle behind all this is to really give the education that was not ever given before, help people open people's eyes to see what they're spending and how they can spend it and how that they are now in control of where their money goes. Their money is no longer in control of them. And if you budget towards certain things like you want to go on a trip or you want to take the kids somewhere or you want to have some sort of personal care, then budget it, plan for it, know that it's coming. And then you are in control. And that is really where we're trying to get families. Avraham, Laman Achai has a concept called, a philosophy called smart chesed. Could you explain what that is? 
I, I don't want to sound presumptuous that saying smart chesed, that the other chesed is not, any other chesed is not smart. Um, it's the idea that chesed is supposed to change people's lives. It's supposed to be goal-oriented. I'm not supposed to feel good because I did the chesed. I'm supposed to change the, the other person's situation. If it's something as small as helping the person across the street, I have brought them from point A to point B. It's not what I did. It's what they have accomplished. Um, again, what Rachel said, the idea of teaching a person how to fish. So we say that if you feed a man a fish, fed him for today, you teach him how to fish, you fed him for life. If you don't feed them while they're learning, they will starve. Therefore, we also have a comprehensive material aid program, and we teach them how to make a fishing pole, meaning that we give them the tools to cope with whatever crisis they're coming through. Um, and that's the idea. Also, we set a goal. We want you out by a certain time. Again, not because we don't like you. How far cared? Like the opposite. We love you and we want to see you on your own. When the Rambam says the highest level of tzedakah is to get a person to be self-sufficient, he wasn't kidding. That's really the highest level that a person no longer needs. Um, no matter how tall that person who sticks his hand out to you is, and, and how short you might be, you're taller than them in their mind because they have to reach their hand out. So we've come up with the idea of instead of a hand out of a hand up, really to work a family through. Um, when a family comes to the Manachai, we look whatever whatever stop gaps are there, we take away in order for them to meet their potential. Um, are they unemployed, underemployed, misemployed, and are they in the wrong uh, profession? Um, and all of that is taken care of together with our team. Our team includes social workers, financial counselors, citizens' rights, a comprehensive approach so that those people at the end are able to stand on their own. Um, one of the other very important aspects of what we do is the second generation. We work to educate the second generation of these families because statistically in the world, 80% of the second generation of impoverished people end up impoverished themselves. So we want to change that dynamic. And, and so far, we've done a good job of that. But the, really, the crux was we were we were quite fortunate over the years to have the support um, and uh, in every way possible of Rabbi Dr. Tursky. Rabbi Tursky was a very big fan of Lamana Chai. He spoke for us on many occasions. Um, and he volunteered and he was a donor and he charged me with the following. He said, many people make a mistake. They think that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. He said, they're almost right. Because an ounce of prevention is worth many pounds of cure. You have to do whatever you can to prevent people from falling into the abyss. So Lamanachai has come up with community programs, not necessarily for our families only, um, whether it's a free loan fund, um, our newest program, which we are very grateful for, is called in Hebrew, Muhanamazuman, and in English, it's called matrimony. And the idea is that young couples, or even not yet couples, maybe people out of the army, people coming out of university, to give them a four course basic financial literacy program. Um, to, to understand how to make a budget, to understand what it means to be an overdraft, to um, understand how to spend and possibly the most important, the difference between needs and wants. Part of the financial literacy is there are things that I need, my food and my shelter and, and my utilities, and then there are things that I want, that vacation, that new uh, suit or dress. Sometimes you do have to give in to your wants because a person shouldn't be restricted all the time. And as Rachel said very well, if there's a budget, so you can fit it into the budget. Budget works this month, great. Doesn't work next month, so I'll have to save up. Um, and that together, that comprehensive approach, we hope will not only help the families that are in a difficult situation who are struggling, 
but help prevent in the community at large. And it's a nationwide program. Can we can come from anywhere to be part of this? And you don't have to be a young couple before or after your wedding. You could be a single. You could be um, an older couple. Anyone who wants to get that financial literacy um, for I don't want to say dummies, but for you know basic training, basic education, it's open to them. And in order to make it meaningful, we charge a very nominal fee of 200 shekel, which if they um, if they complete the course, they get back in a gift card to a store. What you're both saying sounds wonderful. Not surprisingly, I'm more acquainted with Laman Achai, simply living here in Beit Shemesh. And I remember when an important Rav several years ago said that in his opinion, Laman Achai is the best tzedakah on planet Earth. I assume the Project Ezra is probably tied for number one, so we can work that out later. Our biggest compliment has been that we've been compared many times to the pro- as the Project Ezra of Israel. So there we yeah, go. Yeah, it sounds very similar. We're right there with you, and all the things you're saying, a lot of your initiatives. So I I feel feel with someone who understands. <laughs> so I want to ask both of you two questions now about that. The first question is the question about getting them out getting them on their own two feet. That assumes a certain degree of motivation of the person to get on his or her own two feet. And I have heard of stories and I've seen people who are perfectly happy just taking stuck. It's a lot easier. You know, this is actually much simpler than going out there. So Avram, how do you get people to understand that this cannot continue? Let's say they're not taking your advice, but they still need the help because they're not getting a proper job. They're not budgeting well. And I'm talking about somebody who could, but they're just choosing not to because it's a lot easier to continue receiving from the Manachai or another organization, how do you get them out, so to speak? Well, that was a, that was another Rabbi Tversky directive. He told me a story I won't go into now, um, or maybe actually it's worth it. Maybe it's worth it for, for this idea. Um, I had a situation with somebody, um, Scotty's probably showed up at your door before, comes around regularly, and he knocks on the door, and he says, you know, that he has uh, he has needs, and he has a son who has special needs, and, and he has many, many, many contributors from all over the area, and also some from the United States. He's gotten the relatives and friends of people locally. And um, I have I found out that this person has a master's in education as well as an electrician's license, and he pays a driver a significant amount per hour to take him out. And in eight hours a week, he makes more than the three of us combined. So I asked Rabbi Tversky, about this person. I said, is there such a thing as being addicted to getting tzedakah, to snoring? And he said, Avram, I'm surprised at you. because you ever heard of Alexander the Great? I said, Rabbi Tversky, yeah, I think so. He said, Alexander the Great, in his conquest of the world, decided to spend three days at every profession that existed at that time. He wanted to feel amkli, wanted to feel part of the nations that he was conquering, how the low, the, the regular people lived. So he spent three days as a carpenter, three days as a silversmith, and three days as a lawyer, everything. He said, including a schnorr, right? There's a, there are other world's oldest professions. And after the second day, he stopped. So his advisor said, Alexander, you went through 50 professions and you went all the way through. Why did you stop here after two with snoring? He said, if I would have gone three days, I wouldn't have been able to stop. It's so compelling, so addictive to just get something for nothing. I wouldn't have been able to stop. So he said to me, he said, you should know that someone who supports an addicted snorer is no different than giving an alcoholic a drink or drug addict a pill. So to answer your question, how do we get people out? Very often there is a mental or emotional issue underlying the the reason that where they are, where they're at. Um, Very often if that is addressed, 
um, through mental health, uh, through emotional health, um, that can help take care of the problem. Sometimes it's a carrot and a stick. This is going to be the end of the situation. You're not going to be able to get any more. Maybe after you start working or you start training and Pesach comes, as we discussed earlier, and it's a burden, we'll help you. We're not going to continue this gravy train, this feeding you while you're learning if you're not going to cooperate. Because we have a line of people waiting for our resources who really want to change their situation. And very often that can affect a person and change their uh, their attitude. Sometimes they're just not going to, and we have to say, I'm sorry, there's no more help for you here. Um, and then they'll go from place to place. That's our philosophy. That's our protocol. Um, does it work? Some of the times it works. Very often we find a family who it doesn't work with. However, in many, many cases, those families who are not on their feet six months, a year later, come back and say, you know what? I'm ready to start. I'm ready to be part of the program. Okay, thank you. Rachel, do you want to add anything to that? I mean, I want to, only want to add my, that that's exactly where we, well, this is exact, there's no other way that we have found. I was actually waiting when you were going to answer the question, like, oh, how does he do it? Is it different? Like, nope, that's exactly with us. We, first of all, we always welcome families back. If, they, if they've had to be let, if we always say, it's, it, as Robert Leventhal said, it's all with love. All of this is coming from places of love. We, we love the way you love your children, but you want them to go out and live their lives, not sitting with you all the time. We love our clients so much that we don't want them to be our clients anymore. And sometimes it gets to a point that it is addictive. It's just easier. And we've given them every chance. We have provided every sort of training. And, it, and we say the same thing. Go, you'll get the job, you come back. Now, some people say, that sounds crazy. Aren't you supposed to help them? And then they're going to get the job. But if it doesn't happen, we can't then we need to stop let you know giving into this uh and so and then if really it falls apart they'll come back and we hopefully will reinvigorate their search and their want to you know cooperate and and sometimes we you know we're very private about who we talk i'm sure you are as well right it's like no one knows if you're a client here we don't tell anyone nothing right there's nothing that's the only way you can make this work so sometimes we'll get people going i heard you were mean to you know Shmooly, shmool, shmool, or I just, you know, throw it out that no one's in. And I, how dare you say? And then in the back of my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, if you really knew what he did, like you would, you would say, of course you couldn't use community resources on him anymore. But I have to go, I, I hear you, I'm sorry, you know, because that's, that's our role. And sometimes you just have to, you have to play tough, but hopefully it all works out in the end. And, and we all, you know, we can help as many people as we can help. I just want to add one thing to that, Scott. It's very important. Um, in any community that you live, um, not a day goes by that we don't receive a phone call. My neighbor, my friend, my cousin is in a very difficult situation. Can you please reach out to them? And we say no. No, never. They have to come themselves, right? Number half, one. Half the solution is admitting that you have the problem. Half of the solution is take making the effort as difficult as it is to pick up the phone and say, I need help. And we have found that those families who come on their own because they're seeking assistance uh, or do much better than just the push from a relative or whatever, we are not going to be proactive. The only time we would be proactive if there's some um, other issue going on where there's a danger to children or abuse or a question there, then we're proactive with authorities or, or you know the government. Um, we're not going to be proactive to call up and say, oh, we heard you don't have food on the table. How can we help you? It's it's counterproductive. 
hundred percent. We only we we will we get that call every single day. I had that call a half an hour before this one with my friend, my child, by this. I'm like, they have to reach out. You can give them my email address, but it has to come. And I know when we hire our staff, we know that that phone call, that email, that is potentially someone's lowest, most hardest point. So we have to respond in love and in kindness and in inviting them to get the help. Okay, because that's my second question, which I wanted to ask you. So Rachel, I'll ask it based on that segue. How do you get that person to that point where they're willing to call you? Because I'm sure there's plenty of shame and embarrassment, as you said. It's their lowest point calling a stuck organization saying, I can't put food on my table, I can't pay my rent. That is very, very difficult. And as you both said, you won't call them. How do you get that person to overcome that sense of shame, even if it's misplaced shame? It could happen to anybody but people are naturally going to feel embarrassed by that. So how do you get them there? Right. So in a, in a perfect ideal world, we would somehow remove that shame and that stigma, but I don't, we're not there right now. We, there is, there, it's where it is. There is, and we, so we, once they do come to us, we counter it by making them feel as welcome as possible. Like they're doing us the favor for coming to us. Thank you for letting me work with you. But how do you get here? At a certain point, when, when there are certain things in your life that you can't make happen, and those are housing, food, maybe your kid's getting kicked out of school because you didn't pay, you know, whatever it is. When when your real foundation is being rocked, because you can make, you can fake it for a long time. When the foundation is rocked, there's, you have to reach out. Now, often they will reach out to a, someone they're close with. We're very close with all of our community, Rabam. So luckily, often they'll reach out to them and we will partner together. Sometimes they'll just be at that point and they'll see an ad in the paper and it's us and they'll think, all right, I'm going to do it. So people do find us. People find someone in the community and that is how they then shepherd them to us. People will often call me though and say, but what do I say? And how do I get them to come to you? I had a principal of a school once call me and say that this, this teacher is having this tremendous problem and I want them to work with you. And I said, well, I can't call them <laughs> exactly, but he said, okay, what do I say? How do I convince them? So we went through, like, these are the things that they should expect when they call us so that they know this is what it would be like. This is how we can help. It's all on the website, but it's hard to, to go there. And you want to know from someone what it is. So I will spend as many hours as I need talking to families, advocates, and networks to give them ways of convincing their families to call us. And then once they have that buy-in, they're here. It doesn't it's not always a hundred percent, but you've got it. That has to be the first step. And again, if there's abuse and if there's a child, what there's always an and you know, there's always some reading that maybe I would step in, like you the said. The exception that proves the rule, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay, Avram, how about you? So great. Again, that's an excellent question. And and there are some people who, no matter what, they're just embarrassed until again it comes too late. Um, thank God it's not too many. One of the advantages with Lamana High is that we have programs that are not specific to poverty. Um, those prevention programs, or we, we have people who are quite successful financially, but don't have the financial literacy yet who will come to us. Uh, we have a, a, a secondhand store. We have big brother, big sister programs. We have Purim programs and Pesach programs that are open for the whole community. Once people who are in that difficult situation see, hey, one second, someone's going in there and they're uh, volunteering or they're getting the financial counseling or they're benefiting from the Rosh Chodesh program, which has nothing to do with poverty, 
then they feel comfortable to come close. At that point, they can whisper into someone's ear or they can speak to the secretary behind the closed door, whatever it is, because they already have a comfortable um, angle to get in. And I found one of the one of the greatest things about all of these community programs, in addition to the prevention um, and and the uh, and the community support, is that people who otherwise would feel a stigma of coming don't feel that stigma because my next door neighbor with the Lexus is shopping in your in your secondhand store buying a suit, or my my other friend is getting rosh chodesh chalos from from you from your program. Hey, you know what? Maybe it's not such a stigma. If they can do it, I can do it. They come in and. Immediately, someone will realize their situation. And if they need more, they brought into a room or we go to their house um, and start the process that way. Right. But there are people who, no matter what, just are embarrassed or ashamed to take from Sadaka. And I don't know that there's an easy answer there. Let me ask one final question to both of you. At what point do you try to get other people who know the person involved? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say somebody comes to you. They really do need help. This is a genuine Sadaka case with an asterisk. The person has a very wealthy parent and they just don't want to ask their parent for help or they have a very rich cousin or I don't know how far back it could go. I don't know. Maybe it's a second cousin, a third cousin. At what point do you say it's not fair for us to use the money of the tzibor, of the community, when you have a parent or other relative who could help you as long as you ask? At what point do you get them involved in that sort of thing? And when do you say we're just going to help you and we're not going to ask that kind of question? Avraham? So it's a great question. So the truth is we have a detour so that any family that comes to us, um, if there's going to be any sharing of information, they have to agree to that sharing of information, even if it's a relative. That being said, sometimes the person knows that their relative is wealthy, but the same way they're embarrassed, or maybe they're even more embarrassed, they go to their relative than coming to us, um, we will ask you know, can we approach that relative? How would you feel about us approaching the relative to explain? Unfortunately, both for us as an organization and for the individuals, not many of our families over the years have these great wealthy people, but there have been examples. And almost every time where the, where the person agreed, the family was forthcoming. Um, it's rarely that the family wasn't forthcoming in some way or shape. Very often it happens in reverse. The family will come to us and say, I want to give 50,000 shekel to help my family. Can I do it through you? But don't let them know it's me, right? <laughs> It's like, you know, we're, we're playing this uh, a game here. Um, I said, well, you know, what does that mean? I said, you know, look, if the family has a particular need, we're putting them through a retraining course and you want to um, you want to to help us in our costs. That's fine. But I'm not going to say you can't earmark it for that particular person. I was going to ask First that. Of all, it's a legal issue, yeah. right? It's money laundering of some sorts. And secondly, what about all the families that don't have the wealthy relative or friends? It's not fair to them either. So if you want to help us you know, negotiate our costs um, on, a, on a general basis, we will gladly take your tzedakah, your donation. But to say, I'm going to give it to my, and I get this, by the way, probably three or four times a week. You know, can I help pay my brother-in-law's rent or whatever? I said, Sure but you're not getting a receipt for it, right? You, the, it's, I, I'm in the middle of an article. The article is um, not every tax deduction is tzedakah and not every tzedakah is a tax deduction. Um, and people don't understand that, you know. Um, but when, when possible, yes, we will approach friends or neighbors, sometimes as a collective group. But 
if they can do it quietly and it goes into the general fund, but helps us with the program because it's very expensive. When Monachai takes on a family, it's uh, up to three years and it's really getting them on their feet, which could be a significant amount of resource. Okay. Rachel, do you have the same sort of attitude towards family members? Very similar attitude. When we first start working with a family, we not even from a monetary perspective, just from having other supports that allow us to to communicate with them. The same way that you, what you do, we don't talk to anyone about anyone without a signed document from from them. We have docu-signs and you have to sign away that we're allowed to talk to somebody and you have to tell us what we're allowed to talk to them about. So it might be a very narrow thing. Like I'm allowed to talk to your rabbi, but only about the mental health care that your son needs. But I can't talk to them about, and that's fine. They, they, that's the only way you can really help people. They feel comfortable and trust you. But it's so important for us to have support networks, to have a family rabbi, a cousin, a sister, a brother, even if there isn't necessarily financial means around there. Now, obviously, if there are financial means, and that's the really good question, like shouldn't a parent be supporting the child? There's always a lot going on. But in the situations where you you can involve them, often they become they are almost always incredibly open. like yes of course we want to help you now sometimes they go we want to help you but we've helped you 15 times and you still aren't so we want to help you as long as you're getting the budgeting support and from project Ezra or we want to which fine they could do whatever they want and, and make their own relationship and if that's someone we would take on to help fine we will help you if you take this course from project Ezra and so on there's many different you know, ramifications in families, but generally speaking, money or no money, it's always better for everyone if there is a a, a network of people that we can work with and speak to. I see you, Dade Rabbi, because it 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 only helps the family. And sometimes people don't want that. I don't don't talk to my so and so or don't talk to my so and so. But if we can, we can be there for you in a different way. Well, that's like Alcoholics Anonymous. Their success is a sponsor. Having yep. someone they can turn to, someone whose help has gives them moral support, ethical support, and not every family that comes to us has this again because of the privacy and the confidentiality. But the families that do um, generally have a faster, um, more comprehensive success than yep. ones that not. Yeah. Okay. Well. This has been a really important conversation. We moved from talking about the high price of Orthodox life into the problems of materialism, into Ponzi schemes, into proper chesed and proper tzedakah. I think there's a lot of material here, and I salute you both for the tremendous work you do. We'll put the links to both of your organizations, Project Ezra and Laman in the show notes. And I want to thank you for being so forthright and providing all of our listeners with some really important information. So, Rachel Critcher, Rabbi Avram Leventhal, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. How was your drive to school? Let me tell you. I had to get my iced coffee first. I just can't seem to put it down. My favorite rapper just announced a tour. My phone was buzzing like crazy. I'm so excited. I had to text all my friends right then to talk about it. Then someone started calling me and... Let's try that again. I turned my phone off right away. I never drive distracted. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. 
It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.